Well with Friends, definitely not the first podcast featuring a discussion of pop culture and why we think you should like what we like. You should trust us because we're librarians. I'm Anna. And I'm Aline. Every couple of weeks we get together and chat about a pop culture topic or two, what we think and how we feel. We'll end the show with our current obsessions. This is episode number one. Hundred. Oh my god, a hundred episodes! Can you believe it? Not, I can't. <laughs> nope, me neither. It has been several years now. <laughs> Eventually, if you keep doing something, you get to a hundred. Yeah, so we were wondering what we should do for the 100th episode, and yeah. we thought... We should talk about... Exactly. Oh my god, this podcasting professionalism is just incredible. It's so professional. <laughs> So we thought we're going to discuss Bellwether, which is so important to us that we took a hundred episodes to get around to talking about right. it. It's a and special episode. We thought, well, how about if we bring back some beloved guests of Bellwether Friends episodes of yore? Right. Starting off with Bellwether friend emerita Carolyn. Hi, Carolyn. Hey. And then we brought back the two bossy dames, Sophie and Margaret. Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> and Mississippi librarian extraordinaire, Allie. Yay. Hi. We are so glad to have y'all with us in this extravaganza of bellwethering. We are Woo, so excited to be, to be here. We're thrilled to be here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's going to be a little tricky. It is. We're going to be So fine. many people. We're going to be okay. fine. So, Bellwether, written... By Connie Willis, published in 1996. Is that originally? Right? It's a super, super 90s in a lot of ways, but also since the trends come around again, exactly, it's very it's it's very again. on point. It's I don't... pretty immediate. So yeah. I mean, that is the point of this book, and we were hoping that uh, Margaret would give us a synopsis. It doesn't have to be a brief synopsis. For, for those of us who may not have read the book, take it away. This book focuses on the journey of Sandra Foster. She is a statistician and fad researcher. She's researching fads throughout history to see if she can find the point where something popular explodes into something everyone is doing and what causes that. And she works for a huge research conglomerate in Boulder, Colorado called High Tech. She is trying to research how fads are caused so she can stop the bad ones. High Tech is interested in her finding out how fads are caused so they learn how to create them and make a ton of money. Because High Tech is a very, very corporate, very, very frustrating environment. Uh, where she is forced to do management exercises and forced to work with the trend-chasing, thoroughly incompetent professional assistant, Flip, who has various titles throughout the book because she is the only one who can manipulate corporate appropriately. Everyone else is just putty in their hands. So she becomes friends with a chaos scientist named Bennett O'Reilly, and they are pals and maybe a little bit more at the point where his application for continued funding for his project gets flipped otherwise known as he gives it to flip to give to corporate and she disappears it because she is professionally incompetent and he is on the brink of his project being eliminated altogether when she figures out how to write 
her research proposal so that they can get animal studies incorporated into fad research via sheep. And then all sorts of things happen, including an extraordinarily charming love story and maybe a major scientific discovery. But that I don't want to spoil entirely. So did I do okay with that? You did it was great. beautiful. Thank so you. there are Thank you. the thing about this book is that there are things that come up over and over again. The whole book is is a very careful study of how each person is obsessed with a thing, and then every time you see that person, they're obsessed with another iteration of that thing. Like all of the people who work in her office, one of them is obsessed with exercise, and one of them is trying to have a relationship with Ted from marketing. Who's not ready for commitment. Who's not ready for commitment. One of them is obsessed with romantic bride Barbie. <laughs> well, one of them is obsessed with her child who's right, obsessed with side, romantic right, bride right, Barbie. Right. Yes. And she goes, Sandra goes to a cafe, which is always changing names and uh, what they're serving. And she's always looking at the personals and seeing what it is that people are looking for. And it's I, it's hard to describe if you haven't read it. It's just like the volume of things keeps increasing. <laughs> and it's a tiny, tiny book to have this density of threads and interwoven things and information. Yeah. Can I get out ahead of something yes. for the folks who are listening at home who maybe at this point have looked up the book and been like that? The cover is so bad and deeply misrepresentative of the contents of the book. This is true. It really sort of is. You're right. Like it's a very serious book about like um, nuclear holocaust or something. Well, and it It says above the author, it says Hugo and Nebula award winning author of Doomsday Book, and that's which she is. She totally is. (laughs) All three of them. But it gives you the impression that you're going to read something about, like, radioactive butterflies. And I guess that's what it's really trying to emphasize is, like, Mandelbrot diagrams and chaos theory and the butterfly that flaps its wings. Because it's all about sort of, like, how things happen within chaotic systems. But actually, it's just, like, a really charming romantic comedy. Pretty much. It really is. And it doesn't look anything like the cover of the book would suggest. So if you pick this up hoping for a dark look at a post-apocalyptic landscape in the wake of nuclear Holocaust. Sorry. That is not this book. And if you want a really charming and funny love story that absolutely never condescends to you as a reader and also focuses on a woman who is very in love with her profession and extremely good at it, who bonds with someone through her profession, you could hardly do better than reading this book. So I think, Allie, is this your first time reading Bellwether? It is. What are your thoughts? Um, I liked it a lot. It is my first Connie Willis. <gasps> it's a great starter, Willis. And I was expecting it to be a little more sci-fi because of the cover. So thanks Again. for the disclaimer, <laughs> Margaret. But I was extraordinarily charmed by this book. It's very charming. It is super charming. I remember the first time I read it back in 2002. It was brought to my attention by a friend of the podcast, Kelly Jones, when we were taking a reader's advisory survey training in our library system together. 
and we had to read a science fiction novel, and she and I had talked enough by this point for her to know that this was not my cup of tea. And so she's like, I've got a science fiction novel for a romance fan. Right, here you go. <laughs> and she handed it to me, and I read it, and I've loved it ever since. And then, of course, she dragged me through more Connie Willis after that. It's it's great. It's science fiction for a romance fan, absolutely. Um, I tried to remember when I first read it. I first read Connie Willis when I was a senior in high school, I think. But that was to mm -hmm. say nothing of the dog. And I am sure I picked up Bellwether shortly after it was published. Because I've had a copy around me for the bulk of that time. <laughs> <laughs> Since then. In fact, we have several copies to give away at any moment. And as previously noted, this podcast is named after this book. And so I thought we could discuss, in the context of the book, what a bellwether is in the first well, place. It's also fun that you mentioned that this is a book of which you particularly acquire copies to give away, because that's how I read it. Right. Aww. We were in a, <laughs> you and I were at a used bookstore together back when I was still notionally your employee. <laughs> I shouldn't say your direct report, not your employee. Right. An assistant vastly more charming, but nearly as incompetent as Flip. You, you um, gave her Bellwether? <laughs> yeah, she gave me Bellwether. Uh, she gave me Bellwether and to say nothing of the dog in quick succession and converted me to Connie Willis reading forever. Excellent. I would also um, like to say that my copy of Bellwether also came from Bellwether Friends headquarters. <laughs> I can't remember if I mail one to Carolyn or not. No. If you if you have a copy lying around that needs a home, I will be happy to send you my address. We will send you a copy of Bellwether. We'll send you yeah, because I, I have not read it, but Margaret's description of it made me understand why the podcast is named what it's named and also... <laughs> like why it's structured the way that it is. So I have just gotten like a wonderful new insight into a show <laughs> I've been listening to for four years. <laughs> also, so you're going to have a huge crush on Ben and O'Reilly. Okay. Um, I look forward chaos, to it. I, the, the feature that I failed to mention about him is that he appears to be completely trend proof. And that is the initial reason why Sandra is fascinated in him. When she encounters everybody else, she can just immediately categorize like, oh, like you're a high tech hiking obsessive. Or it's like you are nerd chic and you think that by eschewing fashion trends, you're marking yourself out as cooler than that. And it's like you're management chic. And Bennett is just this incredible mix of things that don't go together at all and none of which are trendy at the particular moment in time. And she's like, what's his deal? I have to find out more about him. So how like is he dressing in a way that doesn't correspond to any trend? And what's cool is the answer isn't like, well, he's just above trends because you're not necessarily supposed to think less of other people for engaging in them. It's just like, where does he even buy his clothing? That is not one of the four colors that people are making clothing in at this point in time. Like, Postmodern pink or Trenkoff blue. Right. The two trendy colors within this book. So it's it sounds like he she's like Edward Cullen and he's like Bella Swan. <laughs> wow. I mean, Be, being being power dynamics? Yes. Like being being around him is like strangely soothing. 
It just kind of is fascinating. It's compelling. Okay. He's he's compelling, compelling. to Sandra go. particularly. Okay. Uh, and then he's also lanky and uh, slightly ginger and just like a really sweet and observant person. Uh, I have a huge crush on him. <laughs> and I would like there to be a romantic comedy adaptation of this book with Lucy Lewis, Sandra Foster. Great. Oh. And maybe Donald Gleason as Bennett? Yes, that was exactly yeah, where I was perfect. going. Yeah, I think that that just sounds like a thing he could do really well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I have a question for Carolyn. Yes. You um, allowed me to name the podcast after this book. You were I like, did. I was very tell gracious. me something you really like, Anna. And I was like, I like the book Bellwether. And you were like, great. <laughs> so having heard no, this. No, wouldn't you? Sorry, go ahead. No, go for it. I was going to say, having heard these testimonials, do you have any urge to read the book? So I, there's a, a little bit of shame that I I co-hosted <laughs> this podcast for as long as I did, and I didn't read the book. I remember when you explained it to me, and it, it just, it made total sense, you know, like why we would name a podcast on pop culture items about after this book. And then when you asked me to to do this episode, I was like, oh, now I can finally read it. And then, of course, um, something strange happened with time and space. And yeah, yeah. here we are today. And I, I don't know. <laughs> so I know. Something yes. strange always happens with time and space with me. It's the worst. We do not think you need to read the book. Also, no shame no at shame. all for not reading something ever. Right. We freewilly <laughs> don't read things. <laughs> Here at Bellwether Friends Headquarters, <laughs> I was just curious if you, if you, if it's on your list still, or if you're like, and now I've heard enough about it. Thanks. No, actually, I think Margaret's description of it may moved it up on my list. Great, we'll mail you a copy too. <laughs> so a bellwether is. I've just got to the section where Cheryl describes what a bellwether is. Oh, good. Would you like to read it? This. I thought that I would. So as previously mentioned, uh, to save Bennett's job, they merge his animal chaos research in with Sandra's trend research. And this involves them acquiring a flock of sheep. A flock of sheep they have absolutely no idea how to handle. So they go to the extremely competent assistant that got hired against Flip's wishes and to the ire of almost everyone at the company because Cheryl, in addition to being really compassionate, great at her job, funny, and personable is also unforgivably a smoker. (laughs) And this is at the height of an anti-smoking fad where everyone is obsessing about there being even an iota of smoke in the environment. And so... Very, very strict rules are created to keep her from smoking anywhere comfortable, anywhere near the uh, facilities at all. And because Sandra and Bennett are kind people, had allowed her to smoke down by the sheep paddock. Uh, And she just happens to know a whole lot about sheep. And they're goofing around with them, being flummoxed, and she takes a minute to explain Bennett had been holding onto the sheep and squeezing the whole time he had been talking, but the sheep was apparently operating on some sort of delayed mechanism. It took two docile steps forward and began to buck. Don't let go of the chin, I said, 
which was easier said than done. We both grabbed for the neck. I dropped the book and got a handful of wool. Ben got kicked in the arm. The sheep gave a mighty lunge and took off for the middle of the flock. They do that, Cheryl said, blowing smoke. Whenever they've been separated from the flock, they drive straight back into the middle of it. Group instinct reasserting itself. Thinking for itself is too frightening. We both went over the fence. You know about sheep? Ben said. She nodded, puffing on her cigarette. I know they're the orneriest, stubbornest, dumbest critters on the planet. We already figured that out, Ben said. How do you know about sheep? I asked. I was raised on a sheep farm in Montana. Ben gave a sigh of relief, and I said, can you tell us what to do? We can't get these sheep to do anything. She took a long drag on her cigarette. You need a bellwether, she said. A bellwether, Ben said. What's that, a special kind of halter? She shook her head. A leader. Like a sheepdog, I said. No. A dog can harry and guide and keep the sheep in line, but it can't make them follow. A bellwether's a sheep. A special breed, Ben asked. Nope. Same breed, same sheep. Only it's got something that makes the rest of the flock follow it. Usually it's an old ewe, and some people think it has something to do with hormones. Other people think it's something in their looks. A teacher of mine said they're born with some kind of leadership ability. Attention structure, Ben said. Dominant male monkeys have it. What do you think? I said. Me? She said. Look at the smoke from her cigarette twisting upward. I think a bellwether's the same as any other sheep, only more so. A little hungrier, a little faster, a little greedier. It wants to get to the feed first, to shelter, to a mate, so it's always out there in front. She stopped to take a drag on her cigarette. Not a lot. If it was a long way in front, the flock would have to strike out on their own to follow, and that'd mean thinking for themselves. Just a little bit, so they don't even know they're being led, and the bellwether doesn't know it's leading. If you teach a bellwether to push a button, the rest of the flock will do it too. So that's what a bellwether is. And you can see how that would be a suggestive idea in the field of trend studies, for example. <laughs> trend <laughs> research. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially when fads are so sheep-like. Yes. yes. <clears throat> the analogy between sheep and people is not unmentioned. Un <laughs> <laughs> um, in fact, it plays heavily in the climax of the book. <laughs> but this is one of the reasons why I often describe myself as basic plus <laughs> <laughs> because I think that this is actually a very important part of how I am a really good trend transmitter even being you know outside of trend age right which is like to the 33 year olds around me I'm not intimidatingly cool <laughs> right that's like a dork oh wait this is a family podcast don't worry about it. That's I'm okay. like a huge dork so if I am into something, they don't think that it's, like, too cool for them or beyond them, right? I'm into the things that are, like, just beyond what they know about already. But I'm very relatable and approachable, and I render the new territory that as well. And people are, therefore, more inclined to sort of go out and pick it up than they might be if I were actually cool. And for this, we are truly grateful. Right. <laughs> So that's why I'm basic plus. I love it. I was trying to figure out how to how to describe Flip and her her 
trend-setting ways of using duct tape as fashion accessories and her <laughs> brand on her forehead. And her, Not a tattoo. It's a brand. It's brand. a brand. Um, so the, the audiobook is read by Kate Redding, and who is one of our favorite audio narrators. And she does a great job with Flip's cadences. I don't think I can re- <laughs> really I don't think I can reproduce it. But I have just a conversation with Flip. Everything sucks. You're not going anywhere. You're not accomplishing anything. I'm 22. <laughs> <laughs> she ate a spoonful of foam. Like, why can't I ever meet a guy who isn't a swarb? Whomst amongst us? <laughs> Has, has not asked such a right. question. It might be the forehead tattoo, I thought, and then remembered <laughs> I wasn't any better off than Flip. It's just like groupthink says. She looked at me expectantly and then expelled so much air I thought she was going to deflate. <sighs> <laughs> How can you not know about groupthink? They're the most in-band in Seattle. It's like their song says, spinning my wheels on the launch pad, spitting, I don't know, an itch. This is too bumming, she said, glaring at me like it was my fault. I gotta get out of here. Then she, like, tells the waiter that Sandra will pay her check. <laughs> <laughs> she is the worst, yet she, there's something appealing about, like, her, like, she's just she wants connection, you. like the rest of us. She's super into the dentist that she finds in the personals. She is. <laughs> But she's not geographically compatible. Geographically compatible. One of the things I was having trouble with um, finding read-alikes for this book, which we'll talk about in a little while, but if you haven't listened to the audio, that's a good read-alike. It really is. If, you, if you've read the book and you enjoyed it, the audio is sublime. And if you are an audiobook listener, it's short and sweet. Yeah, and you can re-listen to it many, many times over. Yeah, I used to I keep find. it on my phone and play it in the car if I finished my audiobook without having oh. something queued up. I think that that section also highlights one of the most delightful things that Connie Willis does, which is create fads that are specific to the book, but also highly plausible, including like a whole slang language, which is actually really hard to do well. Yes. Yes, it is. Right? If yeah. you're not, and I think it's one of the things that makes a book not age poorly right? or keeps it from aging poorly. Because if she'd actually been recreating the peak of trendy culture at 1996 in terms of how the characters were speaking to each other and what they were listening to, it would have been dated before it was even published. So instead, she's manufacturing slang that feels plausible, and she does a great job. Right, it's so fetch. <laughs> right, right. I have I have two little things to say about that, and uh, so one is that uh, Wired uh, on their YouTube channel has a really great series of videos with experts, and um, but the the sub series of that that I really really like and have watched multiple times is um, like an acting coach accent expert evaluating the accents of performers in TV and movies. Oh my God, and amazing. They're, oh God, they're so good. And one of them is specifically about made up languages 
in books and that have been adapted for the screen. I would really love if if there were ever a, like a TV or movie adaptation of this book, like if they kept Connie's her slang intact um, and maybe expanded on it a little bit. I would love to see what he had to say about it. Like he gets really into like Klingon grammar. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> it's one of and those. He, has, he has studied Klingon as well, which I thought was really delightful. But anyway, yeah, I just I thought I, I agree that it kind of insulates a book from being dated, but then that seems to be a little bit in tension with the uh, the accent that Flip uses in the audiobook, because mm. that is just one hundred percent Moon Unit Zappa's very exaggerated Valley Girl, like she herself was exaggerating the way that girls from that area spoke in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you were doing the voice, uh, were you, ex- <laughs> were you exaggerating it or is that like an accurate representation of what the audiobook narrator does? It's pretty close. I think that will hit the ears of an audiobook listener of, uh, Aline, yours and my vintage <laughs> a little differently. Like if, if my daughter were to hear it, like my daughter or Carolyn's daughter, there yeah. are girls of the same age. I don't I think can't they wait would for them to meet someday. <laughs> I think that will be a, a glorious, wonderful event. They are but like I, the same person. Yeah. They, it's really uncanny. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think they'll hear it in a completely different way than we would. Mm-hmm. Right, we'll have to watch them closely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I still hear it because I I work with college students routinely. They cycle through um, doing work study work at the library, and they're still out there. It's fascinating with this cadence of speech. So yeah, I and I feel like it seems like it's kind of West Coasty, but I don't yes. know for I I because I am so strongly associated with the West Coast in my heart. I'm always like, oh my gosh, are you from California? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is. I mean, my dad used to try to talk like that when he thought I was talking like that and using like too much. He would be like, I don't know. What are you thinking? (laughs) And so I can't hear it without thinking oh california (laughs) (laughs) it it is definitely the voice that uh we use as parents when we feel our daughter is getting a little too teenagery um and it 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 stops whatever uh sort of temperamental uh issue she has at that moment when her father and i start going oh my god are you serious (laughs) like no way like she did what yeah that's it's not enjoyable for her it still works if you're a millennial trolling your gen z child (laughs) (laughs) they still respond to the implicit shaming of it oh yes good to know i'll file that away yeah yeah good to know and maybe that you guys just planted that early enough that she's susceptible to it and it could be that in sophie's house given that we have two different accents we're working with already. Marcus is British. You guys just didn't lay the groundwork yeah. <laughs> to establish that this was a mockable accent early enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, also part of it is that I, like, have a really warm place in my heart for that accent. Like, sure. I'm trying to think. I definitely do use a particular voice with her when she's acting a fool. <laughs> um, but it's more, it's, but it's not like I tend to turn it on myself. Like, <laughs> Like on purpose, like the, mm-hmm. it's always more effective for me to 
mock her by mocking myself. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just a little pro tip for you guys. Anyone who's uh, <laughs> anyone who's, uh... uh anyone, anyone who has a child in their life who's approaching their tween years. Good oh, to know. Man. Good to know. Making note. Yeah, yep. we're we're at uh we're at nine now. Yeah, yeah. That's a great age. I mean, they've all been they've all been I was gonna great, say they but... say that about most ages. Yep. So... They, yeah. I, I think yeah. in hindsight, every age is fabulous. Very few people say that about 13 to 15. <laughs> I would say that Nell is demonstrating that those can be great, too, if you are lucky enough to have a kid you both love and like. Yes. Which is and, not to say that it is not without its challenges. No, I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, obviously, every age is great and every age has its challenges. And I Every think... age is both great and the worst, much like having children. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, but I think she's much better adjusted than I was at her age and has better yes. friends than I did yes. at that age. Yes. And I think that makes a really, that that most out of anything, I think, makes the, the biggest difference. Well, this is a great segue. Oh, good. To trends in child rearing. Oh. <laughs> oh, is that what we're talking about? I can talk about that for a very long time. Yeah, I have another. I have an excerpt of the book to read. Peyton has gone to Brittany's birthday party and has not remained in control of their actions and feelings. Oh my! Mm-hmm. Mine, Peyton said, and made a grab that left Brittany holding nothing but Barbie's arm. She broke totally hair, Barbie. Brittany wailed. Peyton's mother stood up and ca- said calmly, "Peyton, I think you need a timeout." I thought Peyton needed a good swat, or at least to have totally hair Barbie taken away from her and given back to Brittany, but instead her mother led her to the door of Gina's bedroom. You can come out when you're in control of your feelings, she said to Peyton, who looked like she was in control to me. I can't believe you're still using timeouts, Chelsea's mother said. Everybody's using holding now. Holding, I asked. You hold the child immobile on your lap until the negative behavior stops. It produces a feeling of interceptive safety. Really, I said, looking toward the bedroom door. I would have hated trying to hold Peyton against her will. Holding's been totally abandoned, Lindsay's mother said. We use EE. EE, I said. Esteem enhancement, Lindsay's mother said. EE addresses the positive peripheral behavior, no matter how negative the primary behavior is. (laughs) Positive peripheral behavior, Dina said dubiously. When Peyton took the Barbie away from Brittany just now, Lindsay's mother said, obviously delighted to explain, you would have said, my Peyton, what an assertive grip you have. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, I know that, Mom. (laughs) So that's just a good example of how everything is fodder for the um, trend discussion in Bellwether, including the child birthday party. and i think also what's good is that initially it seems like it's starting out from a position of like oh over permissive parenting like these kids are too soft and then what you realize is like no it's not actually over permissive parenting it's being so enthralled to whatever the current research is that you check your internal compass out and just adopt whole cloth any new theory that's coming to you (laughs) right yeah yeah which a lot of parents do not because they don't care or they're unintelligent 
but because they're really overwhelmed. Yeah, like, it's scary. I, it's, it's scary. It's exhausting. It turns your life upside down. And I think a lot of parents, particularly parents who have more than one young child, like if you have more than one under five, oh God, it just, I think is really hard. And I, Carolyn and, and Anna and I, we, we are all have only children. I was gonna say, so like, it's a, solo it's a, it's a different, design. it's a, yeah, same, but it's a different, that's a totally different scenario than what I grew up with, which was, I had one sister four years younger, and then um, I have another sister six years younger than Sarah. So she's, so yeah, so my, just as my parents were like, rounding the corner of like yes everyone is out of diapers <laughs> everyone's going to school full time who came along and ruined Sh everything yeah charlotte came along but yeah i mean in some ways i'm sure that my mother was not thrilled um but then she came around and she then actually, Poot was the greatest so she is the greatest yeah exactly so but yeah anyway uh oh man i actually have more to say about like children's birthday parties than about <laughs> various <laughs> discipline methods my one of my aforementioned sisters and I were uh driving past uh the mall yesterday and we passed Chuck E. Cheese oh. and I I was able to share with her two very important facts number one that Chuck E. Cheese's full given name is actually Charles Entertainment Cheese yes that the is best. That is true. You can look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> and the other is that I have managed to live these 43 years without ever having set foot in one of those. Really? Yes. Wow. And Me I too. think, I think because I think part of it is because it didn't exist when I was little. So there was no mm -hmm. way for me to have a birthday party there. And then it did exist. And like my sister, Charlotte's contemporaries all had various parties there, but I never attended them. And then by the time Nell came along, uh, it wasn't most, really on trend anymore. Well, parents had moved over to like bounce you and like those other, and pump it up and whatever. Pump it up. Billy yeah. bees. Which, yeah. So I've been to a couple of those and we actually had one party of Nell's there, but fortunately, like after we did that, she really wanted one. And we'd put it off and put it off, just like saying, no, we only do family birthday parties. And, <laughs> and then well, the year she was in kindergarten, I said, okay, we'll do it there. And so we invited her entire kindergarten class and a bunch of kids who she'd gone to daycare with. And it was this amazing experience. And at the end, she was like, I'm really glad we did that. It was super fun. I never want to do that again. Great. <laughs> Oh my God, that like, is ace parenting. <laughs> I can take zero credit for that. that. It was entirely her. That's just Nell being amazing. Yeah, um, that's just Nell having an incredibly durable sense of self from an yes. alarmingly early age. Yes, fact. So this year we did, so this was her first year as a teenager. Yay. And uh, we took her and her friends out to dinner at a, you know, local Italian restaurant of her choice. And then we took them for dessert to this, uh, like, Asian creperie that was a couple of doors down from the, the restaurant where they had dinner. And it was great. That sounds great. Yeah. Small and low-key and fun advice for your child birthday needs yep <laughs> Allie as somebody who has some littles in her life how did you find the uh birthday party scenes I mean like the Barbie thing is so uh -huh. en enduring and not just in a Barbie 
context, like Barbies are still popular and my middle niece still has a bunch of Barbies, but now the big thing are these little, I don't know, dolls called LOLs. Are y'all familiar with the LOLs? No, no. I am not. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tell us everything. So both of my nieces are obsessed with these things. You buy them in like these plastic balls or cases and you don't know what's inside of them. So it's going to be like a variety of LOLs, but half of the fun is opening it and seeing what you get. So it's like, uh, you get a gift and then you get, it's not only a gift, it's a surprise gift. It's like Kinder Surprise, but for dolls? Yes. And wow. they're obsessed with them. They're so huge right now. Like the other day I went over to my brother's house to visit with the kids and my oldest niece was sitting there watching LOL unboxing videos on YouTube. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> So it just reminds me, like, there's always some, there's always something for a child that, and you know, it's, it's around Christmas time right now. So you're seeing all the commercials that are the parents rushing around to try to find the perfect toy. And so those fads come and go. And I think she captured that really well. Yeah. So one of the things that's come up this holiday season is how much we miss uh, shopping for baby, toddler, small child, um, Emma. Cause Aww. we could go, it, it was, it, no, it, it's not as, uh, <laughs> warm and fuzzy as <laughs> it sounds. Sweet? <laughs> no, because we could go to like the Disney store and purchase like all the cool stuff around whatever character she was into and, and we'd be done and it was easy. And we knew that on Christmas morning, she'd be like, Oh my God, I love all of this. Everything is great. As she's gotten older, it, she's, oh, she's gotten taste. She's like a person now. And <laughs> so, there's a little bit. I mean, she's she's super fun, and I think what Sophie said about you know when you like your kid, that just changes everything. And so it's it's great having her. But I miss the days of just going down the aisles at Toys R Us and like filling it with every pink thing now that Toys they had. Now Toys R Us is gone anyway. <laughs> Things move along. I know. Sunrise, sunset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The other days. My my dad was asking us what we should get, what he should get for little G, and it's hard to know because he changes his whatever he's interested in enough that it was national parks, and then it was Shakespeare, and then it was Greek mythology. But are we still in Greek mythology? I don't know. Right now, it's the self-designed right. trading card game. Yeah, right. So you're not. There's nothing you can really get for him as he's just drawing his own trading cards. <laughs> and, well, you could get him drawing supplies. Yes, well, yeah. we may have a surplus of those here. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, so I have gotten him an Owlcrate Junior subscription for his oh. birthday and he so far hasn't read any of the books but he likes the stuff that comes with it and he likes the part where it, like it comes in the mail to him and yeah. um it's like cool stuff and he assures me that at some point he might read the books <laughs> <laughs> and so he he asked me for me to renew it uh, for christmas so i have done so awesome yeah, great Alfred job by, uh, finding a, a repeatable gift right the dream, truly. <laughs> we need to talk about the, I, I think 
the major downside of this book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is Connie Willis's understanding of slash position on library weeding. <laughs> Do you want to read the excerpt? No, I think you should read the excerpt. Okay. One of the nastier trends in library management in recent years is the notion that libraries should be responsive to their patrons. This means having dozens of copies of the Bridges of Madison County and Danielle Steele and a consequent shortage of shelf space to cope with which librarians have taken to purging books that haven't been checked out lately. Why are you throwing out Dickens? I'd asked Lorraine last year at the library book sale, brandishing a copy of Bleak House at her. You can't throw out Dickens. Nobody checked it out, she'd said. If no one checks a book out for a year, it gets taken off the shelves. She had been wearing a sweatshirt that said, A teddy bear is forever, and a pair of plush teddy bear earrings. Obviously, nobody read it. And nobody ever will, because it won't be there for them to check out, I'd said. Bleak House is a wonderful book. Then this is your chance to buy it, she said. Wow. So, so I have a lot of feelings about this <laughs> as a uh, past collection manager and avid weeder. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow. oh, Connie, oh, Connie. I managed not to bring this up with her when I met her <laughs> at a reading. Good job. <laughs> so, so I feel like I need a medal for that because what, what that encapsulates is a single glancing soundbite of weeding. I know that we have variously had conversations in public libraries about a year without circulation being a reason to take a look at a book. Yeah. I wouldn't weed Bleak House. I might weed the third copy of Bleak House, but I would definitely take a look at all the copies of Bleak House if none of them had circulated in a year or more and said, maybe we don't need all four. Let's get rid of the crustiest one. Right. Right. And so there's nuance to everything. And I, I can see Connie Willis having a conversation at her local library with the person that she was talking to, maybe being a reluctant weeder and saying, well, we have to throw out everything that hasn't circulated in a year, which is never the case. Well, it could also be just like somebody instituted a weeding policy that was not good. <laughs> it could be, but there's no weeding policy ever implemented that doesn't include professional discretion. Right, right. True. But it could just be Lorraine as a circulation staffer being like, they just get rid of it after a year. I don't know. Right. Yes, it could be Lorraine, that Lorraine's personal discretion is not involved in the process because Possibly. she isn't making the weeding decisions. Yeah, so. I was looking online for discussion about this book, and I think I ran across a, an article by Joe Walton who said that she also had gone to her library and checked out things that she thought might be in danger. <laughs> Which is a good strategy. I've done that myself. Same. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's important. If you want something to stay in the library and you know that circulation is one of the things that gets looked at, then you just check it out. I checked out Bellwether at my library recently and returned it because I want it to be on the shelf. I don't need a copy. <laughs> And there are only nine copies in our 150 library consortium, right? so that's so, a little daunting. Right. So I was like, you know what? We need to make sure this stays on the shelf. They really need to reissue it with a better cover. <laughs> yeah, the, the cover looks like, like an early iteration of the Galaxy Brain meme. <laughs> it does. I'm just like, I'm not going to read that. No, thank you. <laughs> but 
<laughs> but I have to say so many really good science fiction and fantasy novels of that period have similarly terrible covers. Just 90s, like the 90s cover. Really, really bad. And, you know, in need of updating, I think would experience a great renaissance among readers if they did get new covers. I have a copy of the first book in the Miles right. series by Lois McMaster Buljold, where the bookstore actually wrapped it in a uh, hand-drawn cartoon cover. Yes, <laughs> I have a copy they hated, too. They hated the cover so much. This and cover is terrible. Such a you should get the book. this. Yes. Thanks, Harvard Books. So the other potential potential downside of Bellwether is that Sandra is on the judgy side sometimes. And I was thinking about it, uh, like when she was saying, thinking to herself that maybe Flip wasn't finding anyone to date because of her forehead brand. <laughs> She's a little judgy, but not in the way that any of us would not relate to. Yes. <laughs> and that she's pretty self-aware about it, I think. Well, and she seems to have a, in spite of being judgy about Flip, she does seem to have a world view that encourages her to be kind and generous to those around her. Like, she speaks about wanting to perpetrate trends like signaling before turning left, and there's another one in that particular sentence. But she, this comes back to bite her at some point after Sheryl is hired and Sheryl is assigned to her various colleagues at high tech, but she, Flip does not assign Sheryl to Sandra. And Sandra says, well, you could assign her to me. I don't mind if she smokes. And Flip's like, you're the only person who's halfway nice to me. <laughs> Everyone else is always making me do things. And I, I, that really hit home to me because I occasionally have this fleeting feeling at the library when I do a good job helping someone and they come back to me every day forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm like, You're like, oh okay, no, okay, okay, that was that was a tough one, and and I did a good job, and oh, you've got more, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> So that does beg the question of why why anyone would give Flip anything to do if they if it was important. Like why does Bennett give his funding reallocation form update to Flip to deliver in the first place, other than plot reasons? <laughs> I think they do a sufficiently good job of establishing him as like absent minded. Yeah, I was just about to say the exact same thing. <laughs> That you buy it not just as a, not just as a plot contrivance. Okay, because he could he could easily think, forget from one moment to the next what the the dangers of Flip are, and be like, this is the interdepartmental assistant. She's supposed to deliver interdepartmental mail. Can you take this to paperwork? No. There's <laughs> a there's a great scene where Sandra is looking for some stuff that Flip has lost and she's just going through the trash and someone has poured a can of Coke in the trash and she's like just sifting through layers of stuff that Flip has not done for anyone. And describing it all. It's all stuff that was mentioned earlier in the book. Like, here's this pile of this stuff. and Oh my God. Okay. It's like geological layers of stuff that Flip has not done. Yes, <laughs> pretty much. So Margaret should not liken 
herself to flip as an assistant as she actually did the things that I asked her to do. <laughs> Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> so I want to I want to segue into Rita like by saying that this is a a particular workplace comedy slash romance. Mm-hmm. And that that a lot of the action hinges on the fact that they're at this corporation and management is always trying new things and having sensitivity exercises. And like the reason things change is because they change their budget form and that they are trying to get this grant. They have new acronyms. They have new acronyms at every time. And so Aline's favorite part of the book that she has a tattoo of yeah. Really? Yeah. So she um, has she has one of the points tattooed on her arm. That's amazing. So, so one of my favorite characters in the book is her friend Gina, who is like a person. She's the person who the mother of Brittany just knows how to finesse management. She does. So, I'll start. I'll lead into this conversation. They're at a staff meeting, and management has introduced. Their latest acronym, Guided Resource Initiative Management. Grim. Grim. Oh, dear. And they are supposed to come up with five objectives. But, of course, they're having a conversation instead of coming up with their objectives, as we always do when we are broken out into small discussion groups in a large meeting. What are you looking at? Gina asked. Dr. O'Reilly, I said, wondering if he was old enough to have bought the tie new. The geek down in bio, Elaine said, craning her neck. Bad tie, Gina said. And those glasses, Sarah said. They're so thick you can't even tell what color his eyes are. Gray, I said. But Elaine and Sarah had gone back to discussing stair walking. The best stairs are up on campus, Elaine said. The engineering building, 68 steps, but it's gotten pretty crowded. So I usually do the ones over on Clover. Ted lives on Iris, Sarah said. He's got to acknowledge his male warrior spirit or he'll never be able to embrace his female side. (laughs) All right, fellow workers, management said. Do you have your five objectives? Flip, would you collect them? Elaine looked stricken. Gina snatched the list from her and wrote rapidly. Number one, optimize potential. Number two, facilitate empowerment. Number three, implement visioning. Number four, strategize priorities. Number five, augment core structures. How did you do that? I said admiringly. Those are the five things I always write down, she said and handed the list to Flip as she slouched past. It's true. Those are the five things you always write down. (laughs) So now we write them down. So they are uh, definitely all corporate speak, but I was at a point in my life a few years back where I felt compelled to tattoo number four, strategize priorities on my arm. And it is there. It is there. We'll put a a picture in the show notes. We'll put a picture in the show notes. Every now and then someone asks me about it and I'm like, have you read Bellwether by Connie Willis? (laughs) You did not have it when you met her, correct? I did not have it when I met her. Okay. So So if you meet her, you can be like, hey, look. Look what I did. And she would be like, she would be horrified. (laughs) She would be horrified. She's like, all of Bellwether is about why you shouldn't do that. And I'd be like, yep, here Here I am. (laughs) So um, Aline and I, I don't know, I can't speak for the rest of you, but Aline and I have both worked for a giant corporation. I worked for the 3M Corporation and Aline worked for Microsoft at one point in her life. And the trends in management are always changing, Six Sigma and so on. But they... and I've also worked for two giant library systems right. that would that operate almost as corporations. And this is this is 
so real, it's painful. So real. <laughs> so, so real. I don't know what Connie Wells is... This is pretty early in her, like, publishing career, and I don't know what her day job was ever, but it, it feels like she worked at some company at some point <laughs> in her life. I'm sure she did. So I wanted to segue to read-alikes and watch-alikes. If you have, even the people that have not read it, if you have like a workplace comedy or workplace romance movie or book that has percolated while we've been talking about this, you feel free to chip in. And listeners, as always, I will have everything in our copious show notes. Well, the first one that came to mind for me has a very different tone, but has a very similarly employed main character, and that's The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. Yay! Yay! (laughs) Which focuses on a young woman who works for an online retailer like Amazon, and what her job is is to basically look at the shopping carts of people and figure out why different things are bought together so that they know what to suggest to other purchasers. And she loves her job and she loves working with the data. Um, And that's in part because she is a very high functioning person with autism. And the story is her parents really want her to date. So she absorbs that this is a task she's supposed to master. And she decides that she is going to hire a sex worker to basically like teach her how to be intimate with other people because it's not something that she understands natively. And that's kind of how she goes about approaching the process all the way. And then she and the sex worker fall in love. Yeah, they do. It's adorable. And it's, it's, it is a tough premise to nail and this book nails the heck out of it. Yeah. Excellent. Anyone else have others? Do you have others, Margaret? Or does anyone else have any? So talking about this, it's not a workplace romance, but it is a workplace novel. And it's also set during the 90s. And I just kept thinking about this book, listening to you guys talk. Um, It's Then We Came to the End by Joshua Ferris. Okay. It's meant as satire of the American workplace. um, And it, it does read a little bit like an episode of The Office, which I think is why... I liked it so much. So it, it's humorous, but it's also, you have that cringe factor, right? You, you see, oh God, I have been in this meeting. I have been with this person. <laughs> I, I have heard all of this like nonsense speak. And then I have to, you know, make something of it. So um, I, if, if, you, <laughs> if you like The Office and workplace satire, I would read Then We Came to the End. And it's a great cover. It's just post-it notes. There's something very huh. satisfying <laughs> about the cover. <laughs> I think that actually suggests, like, The Office could be a pretty good watch-alike. Yeah, I oh, think yeah. so. Yep, yep. I have a couple of romances. One of them is Level Up by Kathy Yardley. Uh, which is the first book in her Fandom Hearts series. And it is a workplace rom-com in which an introverted game designer named Tessa decides to create a fandom-based video game in three weeks so that she will get the job as video game engineer at her company. And she enlists the help of the guys at work. One of them is her roommate and person that she may or may not be attracted to. 
<laughs> and so um, I don't know if you haven't read Kathy Yardley already uh, yet. She has got all kinds of geek references and sweet romances, and this is a this is one where the the work and the humor is similar to Bellwether. It's not. There's no real good like perfect analog. I would say there's not. I have one that is almost a jumping off. If you jump from Bellwether to the Kiss Quotient, then you can jump on <laughs> to Bet Me, where oh, yeah. the central character is an actuary. And oh. she, it, it's by Jennifer Cruzy. It is a longtime favorite of the podcast. And mm-hmm. it's a romance that was written 20-some years ago, or maybe just 20 years ago. But it is populated with interesting friend groups. It is, it's a romance novel and Cal and Min, Min. Yes, Mm. Min. Thank you. Cal and Min are grownups with jobs that they are devoted to and interesting circles of friends who interact humorously. It is laugh out loud. There is, I was going to say, I get the same feeling reading and listening to bet me as I do to bellwether, which is like delight Yes. Aww. Yeah, Every it's really few good. Pages. Yeah, and that so that's something that I would put in someone's hands and then I would really want to talk to them about why <laughs> if they didn't find it a similar experience. Right. And we have copies of those to mail to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> that is also on the mailing shelf. I think well, Sophie should get both of those. Audio. Wait, what was that? <laughs> I said I think Sophie should get both. Bellwether and uh, Bet Me. Okay. And what did you say, Carolyn? I said that I'm super excited to listen to it as an audiobook because that's what I need in my life right now is just delight. Perfect. Yes. Audio delight. Auditory delight. Allie, I know you were thinking (laughs) about this question. The only thing I could really come up with was desk set. Oh, yes. (laughs) Which, if you haven't seen Desk Set, listeners, please go forth and watch Desk Set immediately. It's Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. And Catherine Hepburn is a corporate librarian. And um, Spencer Tracy is the programmer of a computer that may or may not replace her entire department in the future. And there's just, there's a lot of acronyms also, MRAC, and mm. uh, it's, and it's a, del- yeah, and it's a delight. A that is such comedy. a good one. Yeah, that is a great one. I have one more science geek romance suggestion, and it is um, Intermediate Thermodynamics by Susanna Nix. And it's about an aerospace engineer and her neighbor who is a screenwriter. And she makes a bargain with him to distract her friend from her terrible ex. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And in return, she will advise him on his sci-fi script. So he is, like, fake dating her friend, but her friend doesn't know it. And so there's a lot in there about the interpersonal relationships between this heroine and her friend and at work, where she's getting all kinds of feedback about how she's brusque and she is not interacting well with her department and I think it's handled very well where she she has reasons for being the way that she is and by the the end of the book you're like okay well she's learned something about like herself and she has had she 
has had a relationship or she's going to have a relationship with her neighbor. And, like, it's it's an interesting book and a sweet romance. I have another watch-alike. Especially if you like desk set, you can go back a little farther to Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell in His Girl Friday. Yes. They are wrong. newspaper people. And it is set in their competition office newspaper and it is a delight and it's it's interesting it's kind of it's seems like it's got like a small just like in desk set it's mostly set right there in the library and his girl friday i can see it in this office and not really very far afield i like that a lot and i put i was looking at a list of workplace romances and it was movies and it came one of the things on the list was working girl and it made me think fondly of this mid to late 80s Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver concoction. <laughs> it's politics have not aged well. And it was a really <laughs> exciting and empowering, like, girl goes off to work sort of story. I saw it as a young teenager. <laughs> and, I, and I remember thinking, this is, this is cool. And there was romance in it, but there was also probably some... I was having a lot of trouble finding things that were not creepy workplace romances or that didn't have issues. And Working Girl has some of those issues, and it was still sort of an informative thing for me as a young person. So, yeah, there's not a lot of workplace romance that's not gross. Yeah. So that's something to consider <laughs> if you are handing people things in read-alikes. Do you, anybody have any others? What else is on the list? I'm looking, I'm looking. <laughs> Closing thoughts? Please read this book. It's so good. <laughs> oh, I have on the list other books with Bellwether in the title. So I know that Margaret has one for this mm-hmm. particular... It's spelled slightly different. Yes. It's... B-E-L-L-W-E-A-T-H-E-R, which is a misspelling, but it's Bellwether Rhapsody by Kate Reculia. Oh, of course. It's phenomenal. Sophie, if Sophie and I were to start a podcast, the odds that we might name it after this book are not zero. (laughs) We just be Bellwether friends with an A. (laughs) That's how jointly obsessed we are with it. Um, so good. And it is the teenage attendees and their uh, adult minders of a high school classical music competition and summit get snowed in at a fading beauty of a Catskill resort on the 15th anniversary of a terrible murder that happened there. And one of the students goes missing and chaos ensues from the viewpoints of various different extraordinarily well-written characters. So it's like a beautiful slasher movie in a book? Uh, yeah. It's not very flashy. Yeah. I'm a chicken, and it's not too scary. It's more of a mystery than a slasher film, but it's a very good mystery. It's not not gory at all. And it's not realistic that like anybody else is gonna die or even a guarantee that the student who disappeared was hurt okay yeah yeah it's 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 a mystery but it's not you know it's not scary at all 
Mm-hmm. It just has it has really good emotional stakes. Oh, such good emotional stakes. Yeah. So many interesting characters. Yeah. So many beautifully rendered viewpoints. It's so good. Excellent. It's equal parts the Westing game and the Shining. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> wow. We, we have a copy. And everyone should read it. I'm but, here but for again, that. It's like the Shining is legit scary, and right. this isn't is at all. Scariness. Yeah. I'm here yeah. for legit scary right. and everything less than legit scary <laughs> because I am a horror fan. So it, you, you don't have to like me, temper though. it for me, and then I'll tell Anna about it. <laughs> so the other one on our list is Bellwether, which is also spelled differently. Bell, as in. Um, the La Belle Epoque, <laughs> Weather by Susanna Kersley, which is a historical fiction slash romance, uh, a doomed romance in 1759 between a captured French officer and a woman in the family he's billeted with in Long Island and a current day person who comes to be the curator of the house museum. And Susanna Kersley was at book expo and I was standing next to her in line and I asked her why she spelled bellwether wrong right (laughs) I I asked her as politely as possible why she was adding an extra e to the middle of bellwether and she said I didn't want it to be confused with Connie Willis's great book when people were searching for it (laughs) and so we squealed (laughs) so I was like oh well um I really like that book too I I may be involved in a podcast that's named after that book. And so we had a nice conversation about Connie Willis. And Susanna Kersley really likes Connie Willis, so I'm pretty sure that her book must be good. (laughs) (laughs) And she's Canadian. She is Canadian. She's very nice. So that's on my TBR list still, along with Bellwether Rhapsody, which I purchased a copy of. Anything else with Bellwether in the title? That's all I had. That's all you had? People are always using Bellwether, and they're always spelling it weird ways. This is true. Any closing thoughts? It sounds like a good book, and I appreciate (laughs) you inviting all of us here to celebrate it and your wonderful podcast's 100th episode. In conclusion, happy 100th episode, Bellwether friends from the gang and from Bellwether, your inspiration itself. Right. Okay, so we've been thinking about our musical obsessions. Carolyn, do you have a musical obsession? I do. So it turns out that I'm secretly a 22-year-old girl who loves indie pop. Um, Right now, my album obsession is uh, the new 1975 A Brief Inquiry into Online Relationships. Excellent. I adore the band, and I adore this album. And I have to say, I'm really sort of weirded out by this new trend of releasing songs from an album like one a week and then but not the whole album we're only going to release half the album song by song and then we're going to make you wait two months for all the rest of the songs it's an interesting marketing tactic um i'm still trying to figure out how i really feel about it Um, although i do love getting new music so regularly the other thing my spotify top 100 showed me that my number one song that I listened to this year was Love Somebody Like You by Joan. And they are a duo out of Arkansas. I love them. And if you want something that is 
a little bit mellow, but not, you'll still feel young, but it's still mellow. (laughs) I adore them. They've got a little bit of an 80s thing going on, uh, especially like with the synthesizer and sometimes the saxophone comes in and they are the most fun. So I I highly recommend Joan and it's J-O-A-N. Awesome. Allie, do you have a musical obsession? I've been deep in a Joni Mitchell mood lately. Hey. Like, <laughs> so I've been listening to Freeman in Paris over and over and over again and like texting my mom lyrics so she'll have it stuck in her head too. <laughs> Sharing an earworm is the highest form of musical love. <laughs> Margaret. Well, Aline, I didn't know you felt that way. I'm going to take full advantage of that. <laughs> right. And I'm ready for your musical obsession, Margaret. Ugh. It's a little soon for Carolyn to have mentioned Spotify Top 100 list. (laughs) Wow. Are you okay? (laughs) No, it's just, it's a, it's a sensitive spot for me. My account was hacked for like eight hours. And apparently in that eight hours, the hacker managed to completely demolish my listening stats. Oh my God. So that there are like 30 songs I've literally never listened to in my top. (laughs) 100 and Spotify thinks that one of my top five bands for the year is Maroon 5. <laughs> Come on now, oh. we know how much you like that. Oh them. god, it's you don't so have to bad. Hide it look, look, in 2017, when my number one most listened to song was Sugar by Maroon 5, I wore it with a badge, like a badge of honor, because right. I chose that song. But that is the only Maroon 5 song I would thus choose. <laughs> And I never voluntarily listen to any other songs they've written. And (laughs) to just have that thrown in my face, it was really painful. However, what could be on my top 100, especially if Spotify paid appropriate attention to the final sixth of the year, which it does not, these lists cut off at October 31st, would be Brandy Carlisle's Christmas song, The Heartache Can Wait. Okay. Which I've been listening to a bunch. It's on some album. You know, some producer always gets a good idea of like, let's get a bunch of indie artists together and put together like a cutesy winter themed, holiday themed indie album that like Starbucks can play. (laughs) And so that's literally what this one's called. I think it's called Winter Cafe. And uh, Brandi Carlisle's song is called The Heartache Can Wait. And it is from the perspective of somebody who is in a relationship that is just about to fall apart and they're like but let's wait until after christmas to break up oh boy um (laughs) look my brand has been and always will be keep the crying christmas yeah yeah yeah. Um, have yourself a merry little christmas yep best song ever and the refrain is something like silver bells and open fires and songs we used to sing one more chance to be inspired is what I'm offering. If love is not enough, <laughs> then stay with me because the heartache can wait. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Happy Christmas, <Thank> everyone. <laughs> it's a heck of a song. That's really crazy. beautiful. And I highly recommend it to everyone. Oh my God. Well, look for it on our musical obsessions playlist. Sophie, do you <laughs> have a great musical sad obsession? cello in there too? It's just terrific. <laughs> oh boy. And Ricky I... Carlisle's voice can't be beat. That's no, that's true. It's true. That's true. That's if you love true. to cry, <laughs> if you love to cry, she's the one for you. That's that's like, very true. Isn't that also just like the most lesbian breakup ever? 
Yes. She's from <laughs> Seattle. <sighs> Your turn, Sophie. Okay. Um, my musical obsession. So like Margaret, I really was very excitedly anticipating the results of my uh, Spotify uh, 2018 wrapped stats. Although once again, my beloved One Direction was my uh, number one <laughs> al- um, artist of the year. I listened to them for 18 hours this year. Yes. <laughs> my top song was uh, Wonder Woman by Casey Musgraves, uh, which I really, really love. And, yeah. But that's not my musical obsession. I'm just saying I'm so pleased that Casey was represented twice in my top five of the year. Um, but also in my, like in the top 10 songs they put in my top 100 of the year is probably my favorite, like new to me song of the year, which is not a new song at all. It's a medley by Aretha Franklin of precious Lord, take my hand and you've got a friend. Nice. Um, oh my God. Which I don't think I had ever listened to her album Amazing Grace before her death this summer. And when she died, I listened to it a lot. Like, I listened to all the songs that I had grown up loving on the radio. So, But I listened to, to um, Amazing Grace a zillion times. And uh, this song in particular, I would just put on repeat. Like, I'll... I'll get into a place where I just want to hear a particular song over and over again. And this one just like is so, I love the juxtaposition of those two songs. Um, I love that it is combining like this sort of like divine and spiritual elements with something that's just like so simple, you know, you've got a friend. I just love it. <laughs> and um, the film is now finally being released, which is really exciting because it had sort of sat in a vault for like 40 years and she didn't want it to be released. And she sort of hemmed and hawed about it a lot. And I've read a couple of reviews and it just sounds like it's a transcendent experience. So I'm really looking forward to the the film's release. And if you've never heard her medley of Precious Lord, Take My Hand, and you've got a friend, I really, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's so good. Great. I, I, we, we'll listen to it shortly after we're done recording, I'm sure. Yeah. Anna, um, what's your musical obsession? So I'm going to go back a week or two, <laughs> to, or two. Um, to our post- bohemian rhapsody queen listening okay and Ooh. and i'm gonna go with somebody to love because that's what i always get stuck in my head and um sometimes Classic. i get the sometimes i get the george michael cover stuck in my head and there's also glee <laughs> Wrong. Yeah, of course <laughs> of course okay you, my musical obsession because of <laughs> the recent release or in upcoming release of Ralph Breaks the Internet, I thought, hey, I need to see Wreck-It Ralph because I never saw it. And uh, we watched Wreck-It Ralph over Thanksgiving weekend, and I went to sleep within 15 minutes of it starting. (laughs) And so (laughs) yesterday afternoon, I knuckled down and watched it and stayed awake. (laughs) It's really brilliant. I just do this thing where I fall asleep sometimes. And the closing credits have an Owl City song called When Can I See You Again? And I am a sucker for Canadian pop. And I thought it was cute and I want it on our Musical Obsessions playlist. So that is my Musical Obsession. Great. I already added it to another 
playlist of ours. Thanks. <laughs> without consulting you. Great. So, <laughs> so I'm glad I can, I can support that choice much better than the other thing that I mentioned earlier, which we will not speak of. Right. She doesn't want me to put this other song on our musical obsessions playlist. No, I don't want it to appear anywhere in our Spotify anything this time around. So don't. <laughs> is it, oh, oh, is it the song that was your first listen yes, in 2018? Yes, she uh, tweeted about uh, uh, it. Uh, uh, uh. I, I see. am not interested in having that recalled to me. She often sings it to me because of her earworm gifting ability. Yes. Mm-hmm. How about a regular obsession? Carolyn. I had to spend some time thinking about this one. So um, the weekend after Thanksgiving was Fred's birthday, and I got tickets for all three of us to go see Book of Mormon. And I really sort of, I thought on this for a while, like, would it be appropriate to take my 13-year-old daughter to Book of Mormon? And it turns out we are the family that takes their 13-year-old daughter to Book of Mormon. <laughs> and she sings along to every song. But so right now, one of the things we've been doing is cozying up, making a fire, sitting around, having something to drink, and singing along to Book of Mormon, which inevitably turns into family karaoke night where we <laughs> all have the karaoke app on our phone. And so we go through and take turns and MNI sing duets and Fred sings all the King George songs from Hamilton. And um, that is how we've been spending our weekend evenings. And it's, I'm obsessed with it. I love I it. I love that. Sounds this is so wonderful. good. I love it. Living the dream, right? Yeah. How about you, Allie? My obsession is committee reading. <laughs> <laughs> good job. I am on the Amelia Bloomer Project, and if your lovely listeners are not familiar with the Amelia Bloomer Project, it is an American Library Association committee of the Social Responsibilities Roundtable, and we curate a list of feminist children's books every year. Um, (laughs) Thank you. I'm in committee reading season, and it's my obsession, and it's what I do most of the time. Thank you for taking a break from it for us. (laughs) Yes. How about you, Margaret? I'm going to be really extra, and I'm going to mention four, but briefly. Okay. (laughs) So I had the good fortune to contribute to both NPR's Best of the Year books coverage and the Boston Globe's Best of the Year book coverage, focusing chiefly on young adult books in both. And I was really thrilled that I got to write up four, like, love stories, all of which involved queer characters, many of which involved queer characters of color. And I'm just going to give you a bulleted list of them and tell you that all four are phenomenal and charming and uh, delightful. And they are The Summer of Jordi Perez and The Best Burger in Los Angeles by Amy Spalding, which is two girls falling in love. One is a plus-size fashion blogger who hates having her picture taken. One is a Latina photographer who teaches her to like it. And it is fantastic. Strong Um, second. Two is Odd One Out by Nick Stone, which is a love triangle between a basketball player slash male cheerleader named Cooper, who is tragically and in a very boneheaded 16-year-old way in love with his 
avowed lesbian best friend, Jupiter. And he starts trying to get over that by getting a crush on the new girl who comes to town. And the complication is that Jupiter does too. And the further complication is that Ray is not sure which one of them she likes better. Uh-oh. Oh, wow. Because she has just realized that maybe she also likes girls. So that's fantastic. And that is if you have any fondness for the period of time where John Green wrote just like light romantic comedies about nerds. Yes, that's the this only period that. of time I like for John Green. This is that with a lot of the problematic nonsense removed. Okay. Okay. So, and then two graphic novels, Check Please, which is like, I don't even have to tell you guys about Check Please. Gay hockey comic. It's so funny oh, and charming. Yes. We've talked um, about it here before. Yes. I yeah. was confident that this was already <laughs> a subject well covered by Bellwether Friends. And then finally for uh, The Prince and the Dressmaker, Yay! which yeah. is a <laughs> so good in terms of queer because it is a straight couple, but the man involved cross dresses. And it's just like a charming Disney story without any of Disney's toxic politics. Yes. So right. well, that's my that's Christmas down. shopping for my daughter done. Yeah, so right. you're all good. <laughs> um, nice. And uh, I have to say, if you have, if you like Check Please, and you're looking for something to to read, and you haven't read Fence, which um, involves an all boys school fencing team, amazing. You should check it out. The first volume has been released recently because I ordered it for my library and I just saw it on the put away shelf, but um, I have been subscribing all along and it is the one comic that I read as soon as I get home from the comic book store. Yeah, she does. I can vouch for that. How about you, Sophie? Um, I think I'm going to go with the BBC slash Netflix series Bodyguard, <laughs> um, which <laughs> Yes, um, I, I yelled exactly. I yelled about at some length longer than I intended to into bossy dames last week. Yeah. I meant to just like write a paragraph and I wound up writing a brief essay about how actually it was, I, you know, I really enjoyed it, obviously like binge watched it over a couple of days, but my, my chief complaint about it is that there was an insufficiency of like, early 19th century style longing like there should have I would have been very happy if there had been a full 90 minutes devoted to the two protagonists just sort of like looking at each other meaningfully <laughs> that would have been just fine yeah so anyway uh I think the the way that I described it in the newsletter is that that's what it ought to have been and it would have been a better and more lasting piece of art if it had leaned more into its like bright star aesthetic and less into its like James Bondy type stuff um although I did enjoy the backwards driving there's some great backwards driving in <laughs> in one episode yeah I would say that is if you enjoy a type of show where the male protagonist looks like he's going to cry all the time, but yet he's also very heroic and there's a, you know, fundamentally messed up relationship between him and the person who he's trying to protect, who he kind of also hates, but finds deeply compelling. This could be a show for you. Also the way he says ma'am 500,000 times is probably the best thing about the show. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Recommended. Okay. With good. caveats, but recommended. Yeah, yeah. 
I just started listening to a new audiobook called Grace and Fury by Tracy Banghart, which is a YA novel. And I'm not sure... I'm definitely obsessed with it. Uh, I was trying to explain it to Aline this morning, <laughs> <laughs> which is a sign that I've like been thinking about it and I need to talk about it with someone. So there, the the setup is it's not clear um, what time period we're in. Like we have firearms, but we don't have phones. It's maybe a fantasy, but there's no magic that I can tell. And there are two sisters, and in this world. Women basically don't have any rights at all, and they're not supposed to learn to read, and they either go be a factory worker, or they, like, are the helpmate around the house, and they have kids. That's it. But a, a select group of women get to go become graces, which is, like, women held up on pedestals as it's the epitome of grace and beauty, who sort of act as a harem for the leader of this country. So mm. that's, the setup is there are these wow. two sisters, one of whom has been raised... To, to try to become a grace, and the other one has been raised to be her handmaiden. And so they go to, like, this grace selection, and the handmaiden girl runs into the heir and his brother in the hallway and is, like, sassy at them. And so he ends up choosing her as his grace, and her sister ends up being the handmaiden. Oh. <clears throat> right. And so... The sassy one is also learned to read um, on the side, and her dutiful, beautiful sister gets caught with her book and sent to a prison island where the women all have to fight to the death for rations. So you've got Whoa. the you've got the woman who there's so turn. much in here. Lot, right? You've got the woman who um who doesn't like know how to play the harp or be graceful or anything who is supposed to like perform and then you've got the woman who is very soft and was raised to please everyone who is now having to fight to death on the prison island i have not finished this book i'm about halfway through it's first in a duology i went to check as soon as i realized this was going to be a potential problem <laughs> <laughs> i want to know so you've got you've got the harem ladies and you've got the island prison ladies i want to know if there are going to be any mentions of same-sex female attraction at all in mm -hmm. this YA book because you've got two groups of women who are largely isolated and reliant on each other for entertainment slash survival. And so that's going to be my test as to whether I like this book or not. If they mention that same-sex attraction is a thing, or are they going to be like that um, article about how the... Um, Astronauts. The astronauts. <laughs> the astronauts from having sex by only sending women. Oh, the astronauts. <laughs> right. Is this going to be an astronaut article book or is this going to be a realistic book? I keep. I will. I will update us later. Yeah, I, I look can't forward. wait to hear what your findings are. Wow. Right. <laughs> right. There's a lot. Okay, so Eileen. So, um, on a little lighter <laughs> note, uh, but maybe corollary to Margaret's list. I am, our regional roundtable of readers' advisory librarians is doing a teen arc this year, and we're doing various aspects of teen literature, and for our speculative session, I am in the process of reading Not Your Sidekick by C.B. Lee, and it is 
awesome if you haven't read it, and I haven't finished it yet, and it has a follow-up called Not Your Villain, which is not a sequel because the events are happening at the same time as Not Your Sidekick, so you don't have to read them in order, but it's giving you another perspective on the story. Jess is the central character, and she is the daughter of two Class C superheroes. This is set a couple hundred years from now after the disasters which have visited nuclear warfare on our Earth and Super realistic. the United States as we can recognize it. And many, many people died, and there are still the vestiges of the North American continent and... The, the disasters brought out metahuman characteristics in people, and there are superheroes of class A, B, and C, and Jess's parents are class C superheroes, which means they can use their superpowers for an hour or so, and then they have to recharge before they can use them again. And they live in a town where they have class C villains that are their nemeses, and that's sort of what they do is they go stop the mischiefs from doing things. And Jess is just about to turn 17, by which time her superpowers, which have been determined to be hereditary, should have manifested. And they don't manifest by her 17th birthday. So she is dealing with having an older sister whose superpowers are Class A, and she has gone off to work in New Bright City as part of the Heroes League of Heroes. And she has a younger brother who is a super genius and goes to college, and she is a regular kid, and she's fine being a regular kid, and she sometimes wonders if she's disappointing her parents. Her best friends are Emma and Bells, and Bells is trans, and Jess has a crush on the red ponytailed volleyball player who she ends up have, sharing an internship with, and about halfway through the book, they discover that the government is not all well and good, as one might hope, and I think that these kids are going to team up to save the world, as teens are wont to do, mm -hmm. and it's super enjoyable, it is super inclusive, it's written by an Asian writer, and it is... There are things about Jess that are so relatable. She accidentally comes out as bisexual in English class one day when they're talking about a poem. She is half Vietnamese and half Chinese, and so she feels like she's not enough of either. She is really cool and smart and probably not working up to her potential in the eyes of her teachers <laughs> and other adults around her, and she's just awesome. And I cannot wait to read the next book. And my colleague, who has read both of them, cannot wait for the third one to be published. So. I second that recommendation since I... Oh, also, Anna, readers advised the heck out of me by giving it to me. She was like, because she knows that I don't read anything. And so she takes it as a personal challenge a personal to put challenge. something in my hands that I will read. And she does a really good job. She's not usually asking me to read things that I don't like, and I trust her. But also, she really hit it out of the park with this one. <laughs> Congratulations. We made That's it to wonderful. the end. Woo! Yay! I have a script. <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> listening. <laughs> we're professional. After 100 episodes, we know what we're doing. I don't need the script. I can do it from memory. Don't do it from memory. You tried that a few episodes ago. <laughs> I can do it. You can find us on Twitter at Bellwether Friends, B E L L 
W-E-T-H-E-R-F-R-N-D-S. You can find us on Facebook, where we put the episode eventually. You can find us on Tumblr, where we are PG to PG-13 rated. If we're we're going to really miss the, the lady I, pictures right. on Tumblr. Um, you can look us up on iTunes and leave us a review, if you want. Uh, I'm Anna, and you can find me online at Helga Grace, H-E-L-G-A-G-R-A-C-E. I'm Aline, and you can find me on Twitter at Surly Spice, S-U-R-L-Y-S-P-I-C-E. Allie, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at A-S-W-A-T-K-I-1. Carolyn. I- I'm still paper squared everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> Margaret. I am likewise Mrs. Friday Next everywhere, but most notably on Twitter. And in addition to that, you can find me and Sophie together at Two Bossy Dames on Twitter, T W O two. Um, and you can also sign up to for our newsletter at twobossydames.substack.com. And you can listen to my TV podcast, Appointment Television, at atvpodcast.com. And sometimes you can hear me on Pop Culture Happy Hour on NPR, like a couple weeks ago when I was on to talk about The Favorite. And Sophie. Hi. Uh, you can find me at Sophie Biblio pretty much everywhere. Excellent. Thank you all for coming and celebrating our 100th episode with us. We're so excited. Thank you for having thank us. Yeah, for, thank you for having us. It was so fun. An honor and fun. <laughs> and um, we will mail you all some books. <laughs> we will. Yay. I feel like a real winner here. Right? <laughs> our in and out music was provided by Julie Jergens. You can find her on Twitter at Hi Miss Julie. Hi Miss Julie. Hi Miss Julie. Hi Miss Julie. Hi. Hi. is true but sometimes you can convince Um, them if you tell them you don't have every pair of shoes you ever bought do you which is a funny thing coming from you (laughs) (laughs) i don't have every pair of shoes i ever bought because when i lived in new york i used to wear them out Mm. and then occasionally i'd get caught in a rainstorm and they'd get ruined